Hi everyone, Pamela Larg here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. This year, the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering was awarded to Denmark's Henrik Stestal and Britain's Andrew Garrod for their achievements in advancing the design, manufacture and deployment of high-performance wind turbines. The prize acknowledges groundbreaking engineering innovation, which is of benefit to humanity. I am joined by Henrik Stestal and Andrew Garrod to learn more about their pioneering work and how it has indeed been beneficial. They provide a brief history of turbine development and look at future innovation we can look forward to, with a special focus on floating offshore wind. They also consider the challenges we face as turbines have increased in size and power and call for the sector to go better rather than bigger. I'm Pamela Larg, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Hendrik, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an opportunity to really recognize and celebrate your contribution to wind energy. And I think it also allows us to take a moment to reflect on how the industry has progressed over the decades and consider where the industry is moving to now. So I'm going to start off, Hendrik, First of all, congratulations on winning the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. I'd like to find out what part of your work was recognised through this award and, and what does this award mean to you? I think that the motivation dealt a lot with the original work relating to what, so to speak, became the initial backbone of the modern wind industry. This was about doing robust turbine designs that could be mass produced in big numbers without being overly risky from a technical point of view and, of course, gradually becoming more and more competitive. But for me, I see this, and I know that Andrew shares my view, that this is as much a recognition of what a large society of people have been able to create. Last year's uh, prize was one for a specific invention in relation to solar power. And there was, so to speak, a eureka moment. This particular invention made such a big impact and 95% of all solar panels now are built using that invention. It happened in 1983, you could identify the people making it and so on. It's very, very different in wind power. What we did was a result of a big ensemble of pioneers and engineers and, and, and researchers' efforts. And there I see myself as much as a representative of an industry that is being acknowledged as somebody receiving a prize for his particular effort. What a humble approach. Uh, so thank you, Hendrik, for answering that question. Andrew, Similar question to you, first of all, congratulations on, on your win. I think it is it is such a phenomenal achievement. 
Talk to me a little bit about your work, your career, and what this award recognizes. Yes, well, thank you very much. It is a, it's a great honor. And I would just like to start by echoing Henrik's statement about the, the nature, the collective nature of this prize. We, we both feel that we are representatives of a, of, a, of a really a huge group of engineers over the last decades who have achieved this extraordinary goal of, of, that we've reached so far. So my, I guess my, my contribution has been largely to do with, with the mathematical modelling of all aspects of wind. So the turbines themselves, the wind, the turbines, all aspects of the turbines, it, from, uh, from the rotor right through into the grid. And they're quite big and complicated things now. Also, the modelling of, of the wind farms. So how much energy will the wind farms produce? Are they bankable? We've done a lot of work with, with banks, making sure the project finance is available. And forecasting, so short-term forecasting to allow um, wind farms to bid into energy markets. So I, I, unlike Henry, who can, I think he can follow a, a pure line of his turbines from the 70s to, to, to today uh, and say, these are mine. Uh, I can't point at any single one and say it's mine, but I can think of that we've probably touched in some way most of them with some aspect of, of our work. It really does make me think about the progress over the last few decades and to see how innovation has advanced. This question is again to both of you. Andrew, you mentioned, I'll, I'll start with you. you, you spoke about how big and complicated turbines are now. And this has actually led to some challenges in terms of quality, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of grid integration. What are your thoughts on the sector now and the challenges that we're experiencing? Would you say that size is actually a problem? I think it's worth looking back a little bit in where we all started. Eric mentioned the origination of the so-called Danish style which was really very, very simple. I mean, I think it was based on simple boat building and agricultural engineering, and it was a terrific start. And um, it had a minimum of controls uh, and a maximum of simplicity. Indeed, there was one company whose, whose motto was powerful simplicity, which I, I rather liked. And then gradually, as the turbines have got bigger and bigger, uh, they've also become more and more complicated. I sometimes say they've gone from being something rather like a tractor in the early 80s to something more like a giant helicopter now with all sorts of computer controls and everything is controlled and very very sophisticated. And along that track, um, the turbos have got bigger, but they've also got more complicated. And I think we should look at those two things separately. So now they are huge. They are, they are the world's biggest rotating machines. And as you say, there is a great discussion about should they get bigger? And... I think everybody would breathe a sigh of relief if they didn't get bigger, if people spent the next five years making them better and better rather than bigger and bigger. Personally, I think that's unlikely to happen because people's, people's natural urge for innovation uh, is difficult to resist, particularly, I think, with the Chinese now very forcefully in the market. So is it a problem? Well, it's, it's a problem in the sense that it's a, it's a big challenge. Is it a problem in the sense that it's, it's expensive? No. I mean, the reason why they're bigger uh, is because it's cheaper if they're bigger, particularly offshore. So I would say it's not so much a problem as a, as, as a question, but it's a very important question. And just going back to my little role in this is, I think the only way you can build these massive machines is, is because you are able to predict how they behave before you build them. 
So, so the, the modelling is a very essential part of it. It is the big question at the moment, I think, or one of the, one of the big questions. Hendrik, would you care to weigh in on that? Our movement from a tractor to a helicopter uh, and perhaps the need for greater monitoring and control? Yes, I think that there's one important aspect here which we shouldn't forget, and that is that they did not get more complicated just because the engineers like to make them like that. They got more complicated partly or at least to a significant extent because we needed them to change their behavior. In the early days, wind was a small addition to an otherwise uh, well-established electrical grid. And if there ever was a disturbance on the grid, the wind turbines were instructed to get off, disconnect, then we'll sort it out on the grid, and then they could reconnect after that. Around the year 2000, it gradually dawned on the electrical grid operators that now wind had actually become such an important parameter and contributor to the power supply to the grid, that if we continued this arrangement, get off while we sort it out, then lacking energy production would in itself aggravate the problem. And therefore, the utilities turned over a relatively short span of time, a few years, to say, oh yes, we know that we instructed you to do this, but now we want you to do exactly the opposite. Now you are so, so much part of the backbone of the grid that you need to stay on, and you need to help us stabilize this problem that has arisen, some sort of mishap out on the grid that needs to be corrected. So part of the reason why they got more complicated is that they changed from being a sort of disconnectable extra addition to the grid to being part of the fundamentals of the electrical grid. But in addition to that, of course, we could not have continued the way we worked in the early years because on a per energy basis, the old turbines were much heavier than they are now. So part of the reason why wind changed from being a thing we liked because it was green and helped us reduce greenhouse gas emission and helped us become independent of external energy supply, but what came at a cost to now where it is in most countries cheaper than any other source of electricity is because we were able to make them lighter and smarter. And there, Andrew's contribution with the modeling capabilities has played a crucial role because it enabled us to understand upfront what would happen with our new machine. And part of the use of that modeling capability was that we enhanced our control systems so we could avoid the biggest loads on the turbines. And that is another good reason why they got more complicated. They needed to be more uh, responsive to what happened to them so that they were not just doing the same thing all the time, but responded to the changing conditions. When it comes to some of the challenges you mentioned, uh, we have two big reasons why turbines occasionally have come out as a series of products that has a quality issue. The one thing is that these machines are, as Andrew mentioned, the largest rotating pieces of equipment in the world. And that means that when you are developing new machines, you are right at the boundary of what is known. Sometimes you are even beyond the boundary. You, we are making bigger fiberglass structures than in, anybody ever did. We are using bigger bearings or bigger this or that 
than anybody ever did. And that, of course, has an inherent risk that you are at the boundary of what anybody else has done before. And secondly, they have become bigger because bigger is cheaper. But that means that the customers, they want the biggest machine they can get because it gives them the cheapest power. But that means that that desire to go bigger is enhancing the risk of going into unknown uh, technical territory. And there, I personally, I would just like Andrew prefer that what I call the arms race had a, a stop at least for a period because the biggest lever in getting the cost down further is actually not a technological one. It has to do instead with mass production that turning these machines into mass-produced units will give us a bigger cost benefit than pursuing always bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and that's where I hope that the industry will realize this and kind of find a way to reduce the cost further, not by going bigger, but by going to mass production. Thank you. Hendrik, you really give us an insight into your important role in this industry, what do you think we will see in terms of industry movements? Are we going to see a focus on bringing down cost, maybe enhancing efficiency, perhaps expect to see different materials being used, perhaps a focus on circular economy? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Andrew, let's start with you. Well, Henrik mentioned earlier on that the, the last QE prize was this quantum leap with the PV. I don't think we're going to see any quantum leaps in wind turbines unless you count going to floating offshore as a quantum leap, and that would be reasonable. I, I think what we're going to see uh, is is incremental improvements, and as these turbines have become commodities, if you if you look at the, the shelf life of a wind turbine, it's still surprisingly short because, as we've already mentioned, there's been a huge pressure for new models, bigger models. So unlike a lot of other industrial activities, uh, you're always developing, I think, probably too soon, uh, the next model. So, so I, I think movement towards a commodity, better and better, and therefore cheaper and cheaper, and more and more reliable. I think those are probably going to be going to be the the key words. There is little little um, ever made of uh, sort of ancillary bits and pieces, which I think are quite important. If we look at we look at the fuel, the wind. When Henrik and I both started, the way you measured a, a wind speed was with a little cup anemometer, which everybody's seen, and maybe a kite. Now we have a, a satellite uh, in space whose sole purpose was to measure the wind resource on Earth. We have lasers pointing in, in all directions, measuring wind at huge heights with a terrific definition. So we've, we've seen a sort of quiet revolution on the fuel side. I think we'll see commoditization of the turbines. You mentioned new materials. I think just last month, um, there was a Swedish company which produced the first 100-meter wooden tower, uh, which it isn't because it, people think of wood being just lumps of wood. It, it isn't. It's, it's wood epoxy, so it's wood with glue, but it's still made of wood rather than steel. Which is, which is quite, and it's 100 meters tall, you know, it's no, it's no small thing. 
so that's that's actually happening. How that will go, uh, we will we will see. Interesting for me in materials is we we have one sort of slightly dark shadow over our industries, which is what we do with the turbine blades when they're finished, uh, and there's been quite a lot of work going on. And I think now with some significant traction on on improving the recyclability, the sustainability of the of the blade production. There will be all sorts of small material improvements uh, as we go along. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I think reliability and, 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 and industrialization, which Henrik mentioned, are probably going to be the key. Quite separately, we should perhaps, perhaps later on, we'll talk about, about uh, floating offshore turbines, which is it's easy to say, oh, well, we've got offshore turbines, now we're going to have floating ones. It's, it's actually a whole different technology, different business, different logistics. Before we do delve into floating offshore wind, Henrik, your thoughts on, on some of the developments we can look forward to in the sector? I think that the... the um... The most important factor will be what I mentioned before, that we will go to a higher degree of mass production. If we speak about reliability, modern turbines are, if they escape the infant mortality of some things that the designer didn't get right, actually very reliable. The old company that I worked for, Siemens Gamesa, they typically have a fleet-wide availability on the order of 98%. So these turbines have become very robust and reliable. But every time we make a new model, we start a little over again and we open the door for mistakes and so on. So my hope is, I think, uh, my hope is that we will get to genuine mass production. And I think that that will in itself give this higher robustness also on some of those products that have had reliability problems over the last few years. I don't think that there will be any big uh, uh, leaps on the order of different concepts or different, uh, significantly different materials or anything like that. For me, this is about like the aircraft industry. Nowadays, you need to be a really aircraft aficionado to be able to see at a distance, the difference between a Boeing and an Airbus and maybe one of the new Chinese aircraft, they look the same. It took many years for aviation to find that shape, but the fundamental arrangement remains the same. And I think that is also what happens here. Going back to what Andrew mentioned of floating offshore wind, would you say that there has been perhaps some disruption uh, in the standardization? Are there new technical considerations that, that are coming to the fore? On floating wind, we can start by asking the very simple question, why? Why would we want to do that? And here the answer is that offshore wind is actually a big success. In Denmark, it accounts for maybe a third of all our electricity. But the problem is that the practical implementation of this Wonderful technology is actually limited to certain geographical areas in the world where you have relatively shallow water close to big population centers and other ways to use electricity. But most of the world is not blessed in that way. And that's where the floating turbines come in. If you go beyond 60, maybe 70 meters, it becomes prohibitively expensive to do bottom fixed foundations. And then you need to shift to floating the motivation ultimately is that while offshore wind can 
supply something on the order of the whole world's electricity production in a commercial manner, it is not evenly distributed. If we add floating, we can produce maybe 10 times the present day electricity consumption in a much more, you could almost say democratic manner, because much more, many more countries can benefit from it. There are some challenges, and one of them, we have progressed so far with that we have almost forgotten it existed. When we started doing the first floater, and I had the good luck to be involved as a turbine supplier for the world's first floating offshore structure, there was a concern whether turbines would be stable or whether they would actually induce uh, vibrations in the system that could become critical. And the observation was, when we did the first, that if you just put on a standard turbine, it does become quite lively. But it takes only a very little moderation with what we call motion control system that adjusts the blades as a function of the movements to make it solid as a rock. And we tried out on this very first turbine two different systems, one made by us, one made by our client, Equinor, and both of them worked perfectly well, and it turned out not to be difficult. So you can use a standard turbine on a floating structure. We still have a very large portfolio of companies that say, my particular version of a floater is the one to go for. But ultimately, this will go the way of the turbines, that it will be funneled down to one or a few basic concepts, and then that is what we will see in the future. There's still a big room for improvement on the technologies of mooring and on the so-called dynamic cables that are required to be able to follow the movement of the of the turbine. But we will surely get to that. And then getting back to my mantra about mass production, floating turbines have one big, not always recognized upside. And that is essentially that the same size fits all. With a floating you have one floater that goes into the, the wind farm. It might even be the same floater that goes into all the wind farms of a large region because they see basically the same conditions. And that, of course, helps on this urge to go to mass production. Fascinating. Andrew, would you like to weigh in? You mentioned earlier on there's probably not going to be a quantum leap in, in the technology, but there is definitely a bifurcation. So we started with the land-based turbines. There was a bifurcation uh, into the bottom fixed turbines, and there's been a further bifurcation to the floating. I think judging the maturity of technology through how different or, or similar they all are is, is a very good uh, standard. And as Henrik says now, there's loads of different concepts for, for, for floating offshore, as there were when Henrik and I started onshore. And now we're down to something that each, at least externally looks quite similar. I'd like to pick up on the point Henrik made about the control systems. Those control systems are now really the nerve center of the turbine. So it all looks the same, but it's twitching all the time. And the twitching is done by the control, the control system. And it might be twitching to change the speed. It might be twitching to reduce the loads or regulate the power. And it's doing a lot of sophisticated things to prolong its life. Now, some will say maybe it's too sophisticated. But when you get to the um, floating system, it is a remarkably uh, powerful technique because the moving, just moving the blade, the pitch of the blade changes with a few degrees. You change the loads on the blades and therefore on the machine 
hugely. So it's an absolutely wonderful way of controlling things and stabilizing things. I must say, I've been surprised by the stability that, that it, it does seem to be a very stable thing, even in quite high seas. A really interesting part of this, I think, is our, our offshore wind industry's relationship with the offshore oil industry. Because when we, when we all started uh, offshore wind, I think we were probably a bit cocky about what we were able to achieve. And we thought, OK, well, we're so good at building all these wind farms. This shouldn't be a problem. And the, and the offshore oil and gas people were extremely confident. I would say, you know, arrogant. So we could do anything where the offshore, uh, offshore oil and gas business. It took, I would say, a good five years, probably more, for, for the wind people to realize it wasn't just a wind farm offshore and for the oil industry to realize it, it wasn't just um, um, an, another oil rig. It was actually something special. And it was something special of its own, offshore wind, because it had to put up with the loads that the offshore oil and gas people were used to dealing with, but it had to be done at a price uh, or at a cost uh, that the wind people were interested in. And I think we are starting the same thing again. There's been lots and lots of floating offshore rigs for oil, but capital cost for them has never been an issue because the uh, the revenue flow from a from from one rig uh, is huge and so you're not mass producing and you're not restricted by cost in our business it's both it's got to be as cheap as possible and you're doing it in large numbers so applying the science developed and the knowledge developed from the offshore oil people to the wind to to the offshore floating wind industry is a very interesting um process, I think. And I think we're gonna, we'll be better at it. And you, and you know that, as you'll be aware, there are now some big, big oil and gas names involved uh, in an offshore floating, floating offshore wind. So we'll see how that, uh, that technology transfers. But again, for me, it comes back to a really another very interesting mathematical problem of how do you now model the waves as well as the wind and the machine and the control system and everything else? And it's, it's terrific fun. <laughs> and it's very nonlinear, very nonlinear. So this is actually perhaps the first time we've really got stuck into nonlinearity. The moorings are very nonlinear things. And that's a, a really another degree of, of complexity. I absolutely love how you define terrific fun, Andrew. And <laughs> I think that is what makes, uh, you know, having a chat to, to engineers who've been in the business for so many years, just an absolute pleasure. And I, I think that's what really comes through talking to both of you, the passion that you've got for the work that you do. I want to know, is it that fun that keeps you engaged, that keeps you coming back for more? Henrik, let me start with you. When I, when I started, my motivation was a mix of a desire to become independent of external sources of energy in our little uh, resource-deprived country, Denmark, um, that doesn't have coal and didn't at that time have much oil and or gas or anything like that. So a mix of this technology fascination and, a, in a way, a very private um, motivation for relating to my parents' farm. Later on, when I got engaged in, in um, a bigger scale, it started becoming a, a feeling of both this could really matter on energy and also when you are a manager in a company, um, the well-being of your employees, that you need, they need to have a safe harbor. You, you need to ensure that the families that relate to your employees are, are well taken care of and so on. And then from 1990 or thereabouts, 
I gradually, late 80s, I gradually became aware of the issue of global warming, as it was called at that time, climate change, we say nowadays. And then it dawned on me that this was a bigger game. This was not about the technology fascination or the well-being of a few hundred people and their families. This was a much bigger play we were engaged in. And since then, that has grown and grown on me that we need to do whatever we can to help avert the climate disaster. But parallel with that, you could say that's in a way we have a disaster, we need to avert it. That could be as a sad motivation every day. Oh, we have this accident. That's what fills it all. It is in the everyday overshadowed by this pleasure of doing good things with people you like. And you can say even having fun in the process. Wind engineering is a extremely broad field of activity. It has everything. And people who have been working, uh, who I've been working with over the years, have very often changed their work focus. They started in in this field of our activity, and gradually they drifted over to something else that they were better at, or found more challenging, or more fun, or whatever. And that possibility we have, because it is this totally wide spectrum of activities. When I sit here, I talk from an office in a company I founded after I retired from the wind industry proper. We are now about a little over 100 people. Um, whenever I walk around the office, I get the feeling that they all thoroughly enjoy what they are doing. They're doing floating offshore wind, they're doing hydrogen, they're doing carbon negative fuels, other climate things, but we are deep into wind power still with our floating concepts. It is as if we fulfill um, the sort of basic needs in many ways of people going to work, that they work with things that matter, they actually feel they are good at it. They are good at it, but they also feel that they are good at it, which is a very seductive motivation factor. We leave them to figure out the way to do it on their own because they are actually better at planning their everyday than the management would ever be. And I feel that we in, in this industry have and have had all the years this pleasure of technology development and the ability to keep on improving, keep on, keep on being a success. It is uh, really, really fascinating. That is what drives me. Henrik, I feel like you shared a great deal of wisdom there. Andrew, where do you find your motivation? Is it also a case of doing good things with people you like? I'm afraid it's going to be terribly boring because I, a lot of what Henrik said is what I also feel. <laughs> so I, I used to run, a, I used to talk to, to new employees in Garrison and I would always end up with a, a statement that, that we had we had three missions for, for our everyday life, um, which was I wanted them to, to enjoy going to work, uh, to do something worthwhile, and then in the end, make some money. And and the, those first two are probably, well, the third one is important to keep going, but the first two are very important. And I remember Henrik and I have quite often, I, I think this word fun, we've both talked about, uh, that if we aren't having fun, you know, something is wrong. And that, but just before we both retired, we were both spending, I think, an awful lot of time traveling around the world, probably a bit worn out by it. And I remember uh, uh, asking Henrik, are you still having fun? And he'd asked me, that same question 
uh, a few years before when, when I was feeling a, a bit knackered. We've both been very lucky uh, to be in the right place at the right time. Mm. And we were at the right age, so we, 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 we happened to get involved in WIN in the late 70s, uh, sorry, early 70s. Actually, I, we both bought, built wind turbines in our parents' fields. I built mine a couple of years before Henrik, but Henrik's was much, much better than mine. <laughs> so I don't know who wins, but we, 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 that was a similar start. And I think the fact that we were at that sort of age uh, in, in the 70s, and we were, we were able to get involved in this immensely exciting industry from the beginning and see it going from a few meters to a few hundred meters, it's an engineer's dream. You ask what kept me going, I think, my original motivation was I wanted to do, be involved in doing things more cleanly, and I wanted to be involved in, in doing something which was interesting. And then I look, look back now, and I used to spend a lot of time abroad, the other side of the world, away from my family, working through the night, doing something rather than thinking, blimey, why, why am I doing this? And then thinking, well, I can't think of anything I would prefer to be doing. I mean, it's so exciting to be involved in an industry which is technically a very interesting, commercially very successful, and doing something thoroughly worthwhile is a really good combination. I'm pretty sure that if I was had been making missiles or something, or, or even cars, I, I, I wouldn't have been the other side of the world working through the night. So it's the feeling that you're doing something which is both exciting and thoroughly worthwhile is hugely stimulating. And I count myself as being incredibly lucky to happen onto this industry at the right time of my life. And it's been terrific fun. Chatting to you is a reminder of why I love my job as well. <laughs> I, I get to speak exactly. to people who are passionate about what they do. So thank you both. It has been an honor and a privilege to speak to you. And I think just to take a moment to celebrate Yes, the award, but just the work that you've done over your lifetimes that has really contributed to where we are today in wind energy. So a big heartfelt thank you from me to both of you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. I would also like to thank our listeners for joining us. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.